All right, so let me invite you to find your seats as Christine reads the scriptures for us this morning and we continue our worship. This is Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 13. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. This is the word of God. Thank you, Christine. Happy 11th anniversary, New Life. It's hard to believe that today marks a new decade for our church. So much has changed in the last 11 years. Uh, more than 11 years ago, there was no such thing as New Life Church of Irvine. Back then, we had uh, no facility, no children's ministry, no elders or deacons or staff. All we had was an idea, a concept, a hope, and a dream. Back then, our goals for New Life looked a little bit different than the goals we have for ourselves today. Back then, we were scrambling around, calling Irvine Unified, calling community centers and hotels, looking for a place to worship. Back then, we were busy setting up our website, knowing how important it would be to have a church website. Back then, we were designing the worship program and figuring out what the liturgy would look like. That was back then. Today, obviously, we're no longer concerned about such goals. Today, our goals look completely different we're not wondering whether or not we can pay the bills and keep the lights on. We're not thinking about how we can survive. Rather, we're thinking about how we as a church can expand and multiply. We're looking to add to our staff and hire a student ministry and education pastor. We're looking to grow and develop our children's ministry, our student ministry. We're looking to add elders, deacons, and deaconesses. We're even looking, Lord willing, one day to hopefully buy our own facility. So new life is in a new season, a new decade. Yet as much as things have changed over the years, there are some things that will always stay the same. There are core values that will always remain. Two of these values I want to share with you this morning. The values of gospel centrality and gospel outreach. Our commitment to the gospel, our commitment to the unchurched, are here to stay as long as God keeps our doors open. And to demonstrate this, I'm going to preach on a passage that I used to preach on 11 years ago. You see, before we started New Life, I wanted to spread the word of what this church was going to be about. And so uh, I was invited to speak at various churches all over Southern California in hopes of casting a vision and spreading the word of new life. I preached on the passage that Christine just read for us. Why? 
because I believe this passage set the tone for the type of church I hoped we would see here. And as much as it was true back then in seed form, it remains true today. Speaking of passion, passion can be communicated in one of two ways. Passion can be communicated by great enthusiasm and energy. If you're passionate about racial justice, you're willing to march the streets, you're willing to make your voice heard, you're willing to protest. If you're passionate about donuts, you're willing to drive long distances, willing to wait in long lines, willing to fork over your money. Passion translates towards effort and energy. Yet there's something else that also communicates our passions. Anger. When our passions are threatened, when our passions are violated, anger erupts. If you're passionate about racial justice, you are going to get livid at the sight of racial injustice. If you're passionate about donuts, you're going to get irate if someone eats all your donuts. Can I get an amen, right? <laughs> our anger can serve as a litmus test for our passions. Well, if that's the case, then what is Jesus passionate about? Have you ever wondered, what was he really passionate about? Well, perhaps we can look at his anger as a litmus test. There aren't many places in Scripture where we see Jesus get angry, but he does get angry at times. But the most visible place where his anger is revealed is, of course, here at the temple where Jesus clears it. This is one of those instances that startle us, that jar us, it seems so uncharacteristic of him. We see Jesus flipping over tables, turning over chairs. John even tells us that he fashions a whip to drive everyone out of the temple. And so seeing Jesus uncharacteristically this angry causes us to ask, why is he so upset? Or perhaps the better question, what is he so passionate about? What passion is being threatened? What passion is being violated? Well, thankfully, here we've got a clue from Jesus' words. He says in verse 13, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. I know he doesn't say much, it's just one sentence, but in this sentence, we discover two things that he is passionate about, two things that drive his anger. The first is, he is livid because Jesus is passionate about the purity of the temple. Unless you understand the purpose and the design of the temple, you won't understand his anger. You see, the temple in the Old Testament was much more than simply a house of worship for Israel. 
It was much more than a gathering place for the Israelites to come and offer their sacrifices to God. What made the temple so sacred, so special, was not so much the presence of Israelite worshipers as much as it was the presence of God himself. You see, the temple was designed to be God's dwelling place, his home. You see, in the Old Testament, there is a concept known as sacred space. If you grew up in the church, you were taught that God is omnipresent, that he's everywhere at the same time. And that is very much true, and we praise God for that because it means that he's accessible anywhere at any time. Whether you're in the closet, in the car, or in the office, God is accessible to you because he's omnipresent. At the same time, the scriptures also make clear that there are certain locations, certain places where he is especially present, more fully there, so to speak. I think of places like the Garden of Eden. God was more present in the Garden of Eden. How do we know? Because when Adam and Eve sinned, they are removed from the Garden. I think of the famous burning bush scene where God reveals himself to Moses. Remember what God said to Moses? Moses, take off your sandals because why? This is holy ground. And of course, we have the temple. There was no more sacred space in the Old Testament than the temple, the dwelling place of God. Now can you understand why Jesus is mortified at what he saw that day? Let me describe for you a little bit of what he saw. The area he entered was known as the court of the Gentiles. According to historians, this court measured three football fields long, two football fields wide. It's huge. It was a gigantic marble-paved plaza. And given the fact that this was the week of Passover, where Jerusalem quadrupled in size, it was buzzing with people, tables, sellers, money changers, and animals. What was for sale? Animals for sacrifice. When you visited the temple, you often came from far away places, traveling several days on foot. It was absolutely cumbersome to bring an animal from home to offer at the temple. And so the Jewish leaders provided a service for the worshipers. Instead of bringing an animal from home, we'll let you purchase one here so it'll be convenient. And so given the fact that at Passover, Jerusalem swelled close to 500,000 people to even a million people, you can imagine just how much business was taking place in that plaza. 
You can hear the clanking of coins as money is being exchanged. You can hear the voices of vendors yelling, trying to grab the attention of prospective customers. You can hear heated arguments between customers as they haggle for the best price. You could hear the sounds of animals bleeding as they're handed over. At an annual type of event like this, you can be sure that there was a crazy markup on prices. Just like you and I get fleeced every time we buy popcorn and candy at the movie theaters, these worshipers paid exorbitant prices for these animals. And so this day where they were expecting to train their thoughts and their hearts towards the Lord, turned to anger at the outrageous prices as they feel ripped off by these vendors. And so what Jesus saw that day was something like a swap meet, the New York Stock Exchange and a tailgate party all rolled into one here at the house of the Lord. Last week, we talked about how man flips the script on God when it comes to creating God in our image. God originally created man in his image, and yet because of the fall, you and I instead create God in our own image. Well, we see that the the Jews did the same when it came to the temple. They reinvented the temple and created the temple in their own image so that the temple looked more like their own heart's greedy desires rather than the design and heart of God. Well, the same can happen for the church. We can take the church and recreate it into our own sinful image. Some of the ways that we see this today are the health and wealth gospel that we see throughout America. A distorted view of the gospel that declares that if you pray hard enough, worship hard enough, believe hard enough, and of course, give generously enough, God will grant you your heart's desires. God will heal you of your disease. God will bless your business and make you millions, God will say yes to all of your prayers. That's creating the gospel in our own image. Another example is what we call Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism is a fusion of our passion for politics and our passion for God, so that the gospel you hear is just a baptized version of what you might hear your favorite political pundit might say. That is creating the church in your own image. Another example is consumer Christianity, or what I call comfortable Christianity, where the church is turned into a shopping mall of spiritual services and goods, where the church exists for your well-being, your comfort, and ease. Come every Sunday to hear a gospel with no law. Come every Sunday to hear about grace, but no discipleship. 
Jesus might have said, come, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. But these churches will say, come, pamper yourself, pick up your pillow and I'll follow you. The church is like a five-star resort hotel where their efforts is to make the consumer experience as seamless and effortless as possible. Come, recline on our hard metal chairs, uh, and we will pamper you so that you can experience God with as minimal effort as possible. These are just a few examples of how we can distort the church into our own image. But here at New Life, we are committed to the Word of God, the entire Word of God. We're committed to gospel fidelity, to preaching and declaring the whole gospel and not a truncated one. We are committed to declaring every Sunday the preeminence of God's glory, supremely demonstrated through the sacrifice of his only begotten son, so that we rebels and sinners might be forgiven, redeemed, and adopted into eternity. And though this gospel saves us as we are, it does not leave us where we are. The gospel transforms us changes us and frees us from empty earthly pursuits so that we no longer live to build a kingdom of self, but rather live for the kingdom of God. Coming to faith then is only the beginning of a lifelong journey where God beckons us to come and die, to come and serve, even suffer for his sake. This is the good news. This is the gospel. This is the calling that God has invited us to. And for the last 11 years, we've been committed to this task. It has always been our desire that the gospel saturates our Sunday services from the very structure and rhythm of our service to the prayer of confession and declaration of pardon, to the songs we sing, the sermons we hear, to the sacraments we celebrate, over and over again, we are being inundated with the gospel. Because it was our hopes from day one that anyone who comes will leave being drenched with grace, soaking wet from head to toe that no one would leave this place without hearing Christ and him crucified. Yet there's another reason why Jesus is upset here. Another passion that's being violated. Let's look at what he says again in verse 13 with special attention to the first half. It is written, he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. What does he mean, a house of prayer? Well, the fact that he says it is written signals what? He's quoting the Old Testament. And so where should we look? What is he quoting from? He's quoting specifically Isaiah 56, 6 through 7. 
And we'll understand what Jesus has in mind when you read Isaiah 56, 6 through 7, and the larger context from which house of prayer is drawn from. Let me read it for you. It says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, which is where the temple stood and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for what? For all peoples. Who are these peoples that Isaiah envisions coming to the temple, offering sacrifices, enjoining themselves to the Lord? They are foreigners, They are outsiders. And so when Jesus says, my house is a house of prayer, what he means is, my house is a house of prayers from all peoples. This is supposed to be a global temple. A temple where not just Hebrew prayers are offered, but Farsi prayers, Portuguese prayers, Mandarin prayers, Swahili prayers. Prayers from every corner of the earth. And Jesus is passionate that this gospel would be spread to every tongue, tribe, and nation. As much as he's passionate for the purity of the temple, he's also passionate for its expansion. The Israelites were called to be a blessing to the nations. But instead, Jesus saw a people who were only concerned about blessing themselves. He saw a faith that had become an exclusive country club where the leaders became elitists and sectarian. Instead of sharing their faith to the nations, they were shielding their faith from the nations rather than empowering others to know the Lord, they were preserving their own power. Instead of building bridges to the nations, they were erecting walls. After all, this place, this this clearing took place in what part of the temple? The court of the Gentiles. God even designed the temple to have a space for Gentiles to come and watch and participate. From day one, I've told people that New Life is a gospel-centered church and a missional one, a church for the unchurched. From day one, we wanted to plant a church that ministered not only to those inside the church, but also outside. And by outside the church, I'm not just thinking about foreign missions, as important as that is. By outside the church, I mean our own neighborhoods, places of work, schools, our city. I want us to see ourselves as missionaries sent, commissioned by God to serve as his ambassadors where we live, work, and play. And over these past 11 years, I am so thankful 
that God has used new life to bring the gospel to virgin ears, to those who have never heard the gospel in their lives. I will never forget the many instances where the light bulb turned on, where someone all of a sudden gets grace. I will never forget the times where people are visibly moved, crying, because they realize that their God has forgiven them and adopted them. Now, over the years, we have seen numerous baptisms, numerous professions of faith. Even last month, we had the privilege of witnessing our brother Parsa's baptism. And we thank God for that. But I must say that the older we get and the bigger we get, the harder it will be for us to maintain our missional drive and pursuit. It's human nature that the bigger we become, the more comfortable we are, and the more comfortable we are, the more complacent we'll be. That we'll come here and say, hey, the music is nice, the worship experience is great, I love my small group, my family is happy here, and so we kick up our feet and say, we've arrived. But dear friends, may God protect us from a maintenance mode mindset. May God protect us from being ingrown and inward facing. May God protect us from complacency and simply focusing on our own needs. Unfortunately, we've seen this tendency of growth leading to comfort even in our own church where the number of baptisms and conversions and professions of faith we've seen have drastically slowed in the past few years. And you might say, well, COVID happened. Yes, but even still with COVID, outside of the baptism we witnessed last month, it's been a few years since someone has come to faith. Dear friends, God is not done with our church He is not done with you. There is so much that God has called us to, so many lives he wants to touch. How else do you explain the explosion of our international student ministry? They're not here because school's not in session yet, but a little more than two years ago, we didn't have a single college student. We had, I think, two PhD students. That's as close as we could get. But now we've got 20 to 30 students from all over the world regularly worshiping with us, not only worshiping with us, but wanting to hang out with us. What an opportunity that is. Instead of going to the nations, the nations are coming to us. Today, our children's ministry and student ministries are growing Minds are maturing. Questions are being asked. Oh, what an opportunity we have to step in and make a profound impact on the lives of our youth. How many of us were especially impacted by leaders when we were young who poured their lives into us. Perhaps God is calling us to do the same for others. Every Sunday, 
for some reason, God brings new families to our church. Perhaps it's because Irvine is a city that continues to grow. He brings families who have moved uh, far away to here, away from family, away from friends. Families who are looking for friendships, for community. What a wonderful idea it could be to help these families transition over, to provide the spiritual support they need by joining a life group, hosting one or leading one. But there's another exciting opportunity that God has placed on our laps most recently. Now that new life is entering a new decade, I believe, the elders and I believe, that God wants us to plant a new church. He's calling us to multiply. Thankfully, uh, this year we will be partnering with a Chinese pastor who has a vision to plant a brand new Mandarin-speaking church here in the Great Park. As you may know, Chinese speakers are moving to Irvine at a record pace. About once a month, we'll have someone come and ask us, do you speak Chinese? They are moving here at a record pace. There are more Chinese people here in Irvine than any other minority. And here in North Irvine, I dare say they make up the majority. And yet, though the number of Chinese speakers have exponentially grown in Irvine, the number of churches ministering to them remained the same in the last decade. And so the need to reach uh, our Chinese brothers and sisters is huge. And we're grateful that a pastor by the name of Tony Wang and his family will be moving to Irvine from Florida this summer. And our session has agreed to partner with him and do what we can to help him successfully launch as we serve as his mother church. We will have opportunity to make a strategic impact on this city through our support of this dear brother. So if you've got any Chinese co-workers, friends, or neighbors, start praying for them now. Church, there is much to thank God for. There is much to celebrate, and we should celebrate. But I want to remind us, God is not done with us yet. There is so much God is calling us to do. So many more lives he is ready to change and transform. I hope that you will join me in pursuing the vision God has given to new life, a vision to see a gospel movement where lives radically change, families flourish, and our city prospers. But in order to pursue and make this vision a reality, we need your help. We need your partnership. And so I hope you are as excited as I am for what God has in store for us. Would you join me in this new season, in this new decade, as we proclaim the same gospel and pursue the same mission? Let's pray together.
Father, life with you is never dull. For you have called us to live for something greater than ourselves, for a dream that is far larger than anything we can dream up for ourselves. You've invited us to step into your great plan of redemption for this world. And we pray that new life will play a small part in your efforts in bringing the nations to yourself. We pray, Lord, that you would use the members of this church to play a small part in our ability to pursue the vision you have given us. And so we pray that you would stir us, that you would enliven us, that you would excite us, O Lord, for uh, the work that you uh, plan to do uh, through new life. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.